Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 3. Abadar Lintamande. There is not a chaotic evil god like that, because Keltham was somewhat misinformed about chaos and also about evil. There is, as it happens, a god like that. Among the many disadvantages of shattered prophecy is that sometimes strange, attention-demanding things happen which are unscheduled. The situation of a god on the plains could be compared to a titan with a hundred thousand eyes, standing atop a mountain, gazing down at a dozen surrounding countries, each filled with a billion squirrels. Even as a titan, you cannot think about all the squirrels individually. You can at best set a fraction of your attention to watching for predefined signals that you have trained the squirrels to use. The squirrels cannot understand the coordinates to align their eyes across many dimensions to look at you. But you can give them a word like Abadar and a holy symbol and say a few words about why banks need to exist, and then notice when a squirrel looks in that direction, not quite at you, but more in your direction than the other titans atop their own mountains. One day, a fraction of your attention notices a squirrel looking, in one set of sub-dimensions, along an angle that would be aligned almost exactly on the real you, if the squirrel could get the other dimensions right too. It's surprising, because you have never seen a squirrel look in that direction before. You have wished. You could explain it to squirrels, but prediction always showed their heads exploding when you tried that so you didn't try it. Then the squirrel thinks for a bit and turns its head into another dimension, and looks almost right at the correct angle in that dimension too. The squirrel pauses, visibly, to a god, staring inside itself and deducing further conclusions from premises, and then angles its head and looks almost directly at your angle in yet another dimension. If the power disparities were not what they were, the squirrel's behaviour might be considered reminiscent of a stalking predator, the more human-like and sadistic kind of monster, who is deliberately crouching down to look under the dresser, standing up, and then crouching down again only to look under the desk. And the stalker knows all along that you are actually under the bed. You are not frightened, under the circumstances, where the circumstances are that you are a god. But you are definitely noticing... Then the squirrel gathers itself, angles its viewpoint, and turns to stare almost directly at you, including some mathy parts that nobody in Axis is allowed by treaty to explain to anybody who might go back to Galarian. You wait for the squirrel to pray to you, to make one of the appeals which you are allowed by treaty to respond to without that being incredibly expensive. So you can, very softly and carefully so it doesn't explode, Ask the squirrel what the abyss is going on, and how a squirrel even got this address. The squirrel thinks loudly about how it might not mind being your cleric, but doesn't actually ask. Then the squirrel looks at five gods one after another in the stories for mortals coordinates, one of which is the standard wrong address for you. Then the squirrel goes back to thinking. Also the squirrel's body is in an Asmodean church near the world wound, its mind looks like a teenaged male raised by modrons, and its immaterial soul is ninety-three minutes old. 
You would have more attention to pay this sort of anomaly if the surprise had been properly scheduled like in the other worlds you deal with. Entities with very high intelligence don't make quite the same kind of comical mistakes that humans do. They know what they don't know. They pick up on alternate hypotheses and incongruent facts very early on. They still make comical mistakes, to be clear, as seen from their own perspectives, but different ones. Why is the mortal thinking loudly about being a cleric, but not actually asking? Abadar doesn't know, but he knows that he doesn't know. Among the possibilities is that the mortal who is in an Asmodean church is in a life position where suddenly becoming a cleric of Abadar would be inconvenient due to the Asmodean reaction to it. This is only one hypothesis among several. Abadar does not leap to the conclusion. It is not even certain that the mortal was deliberately choosing not to immediately pray for clerichood, or that the mortal knew that Abadar was watching and might otherwise have responded. That is only one hypothesis group among several. But it is a large enough strategic equivalence class of hypotheses that Abadar is not dropping cleric levels on the mortal right away, in case the mortal definitely didn't want that and was trying to signal so. Could the five gods in the sequence be a deliberate message? The tiny fraction of Abadar's attention that he can spare does consider some possibilities like that. It would be stupid in a sense not to think of them at all. Asmodeus Abadar nor Gorber Calistria en Ethis could be interpreted as tyrant, Abadar, murder-revenge magic, and be an attempted message that somebody was about to assassinate the Prince of Osirion, vengefully, using magic. This comical misinterpretation does not actually happen, because if the mortal had wanted to send a message to Abadar, its posture would have changed in a way Abadar could detect. It's part of the posture of treaty-defined prayer. But something strange is clearly happening, and it would be a huge wasted opportunity if this mortal ended up being squished by Asmodians before it could at least tell other mortals some things that Abada hasn't been allowed to explain directly. But if Abadar calls up Asmodeus and offers to buy the avoidance of squishing this particular squirrel, might that not call the attention of Asmodeus down upon this squirrel, in exactly the way that the squirrel might, on some hypotheses, have been trying to avoid by deliberately not asking Abadar for clericud. If one were a mortal, one might, perhaps, reason that there is nothing to be done here. But Asmodeus is a lawful god, and does not generally prefer accidentally stepping on Abadar's goals, over being paid to avoid stepping on Abadar's goals. It would be in some sense silly if Abadar and Asmodeus had no possible coordinated strategy better than Asmodeus's church accidentally squishing a valuable squirrel, because Abadar was afraid to talk to Asmodeus about that. They would be noticeably off the Pareto optimal boundary. Abadar sends a brief packet to Asmodeus which might translate as, Hey Asmodeus, I want to reveal information relevant to negotiating a potential gainful trade, where that information itself might otherwise worsen my negotiating position for the trade, on the standard condition that you promise not to use that information to implement strategies that lead to worse outcomes than would have obtained in the counterfactual, where I stayed silent, as evaluated by either my utility function or by the best-guess probable utility function of another party, who revealed that information to me. Asmodeus, 
Lintamande, acknowledged, agreed to. Humans trying to make a similar arrangement might be relying on reputation. The last thousand times we did this, he kept his end. Or character. He seems like the sort of person who'd keep his word. Or consequences. Breaking his word would be punished. Or the prospects of future cooperation. If he betrays the agreement this time, we won't be able to do this in future, which would be a loss to him. Gods can just make parts of them legible to one another, and promise with those. Asmodeus is in part keeping of agreements, and if all of those sources of motivation suddenly failed to obtain, there would still be the agreement itself, in no sense weakened. Not everything about him is knowable, not even to other gods, but this is. Some humans understand this in part, and think that it means Asmodeus can be outwitted. If he gives his word unwisely, after all, he will keep it. And if you cleverly trap him into promising you wealth and power, or the right to reign in hell or anything else, he would follow through. This is true, but if you think you've found an opportunity to do it, you haven't. Asmodeus is curious, but only slightly. Most of his attention is in other places, doing other things. A mortal has had an unshared insight into Abadar's domain. This mortal is probably but not definitely under the power of, or threatenable by, Asmodeus slash Cheliax slash the Asmodean Church. Abadar wants to pay to modify future events so that the mortal doesn't end up dead and soul-trapped, slash maledicted in a way that prevents Assyrians from resurrecting it nor spending nearly all of its natural lifespan in Cheliax or prison never talking extensively with Abadar's followers, nor tortured by Asmodeans into not being in an Abadaran shape, nor traumatized, edged by having all of its friends and family tortured, to the point where it'd no longer be an inspiring teacher if Abadar Osirian paid it to do that. Abadar doesn't need to explicitly list brain damage and mind wipes as also undesirable, he mainly sends a specification over ultimate consequences. Abadar honestly discloses that this mortal may or may not be opposing some ongoing Asmodean plan, as mortals sometimes end up doing. Abadar doesn't know this, but has seen 1.8 bits of evidence over the prior. If so, Abadar is not offering to pay for letting the mortal have free reign to oppose Asmodeus unopposed, or anything that expensive. He just wants to pay for having the mortal delivered to Osirian afterwards instead of squished. Abadar did, however, find all this out, through what seemed like a voluntary high-trust action of revelation from the mortal. So, information from this negotiation itself, especially that the mortal might have plans opposing Asmodeans, must not be used to further Asmodeus's interests at the mortal's expense, if Abadar points out the mortal to Asmodeus, that Asmodeus should not egg try to falsely depict Abadar as having betrayed the mortal to him follows automatically from the previous goal spec. Abadar mainly predicts this would cost Asmodeus one revelation to Asmodeans via priest or devil, whatever marginal value Asmodeus could otherwise get by torturing one mortal instead of coaxing it possibly it being marginally harder to oppose the mortal's opposition to some unknown plan, 
and attention cost of thought if Asmodeus has a price on that, agreeable to Abadar, Abadar can give distinguishing characteristics for the mortal in question. It's a marginally more complicated negotiation than, say, Iomede would demand. With Iomede, Abadar would just offer to pay for some utility, since she knows Abadar's utility function. Indeed, Iomede could just ask for fair reimbursement afterwards. He's lawful, she's lawful. Asmodeus has stated a preference for fully specified contracts with advance-agreed payments based on expected values instead of actual values, and the thing where parties retain some private information while trying to guess how much private information the other party has, it tends to favour the party with higher intelligence in negotiations. But Asmodeus apparently still does it, even when the other party realises that and adjusts prices accordingly. He just likes contracts. Abadar is happy enough to go along with it, in cases like this one where that reduces Abadar's payments variance across counterfactuals. Asmodeus considers this. A human would be tempted to try to identify the mortal, based on the information provided, and it happens that in this case that would probably be possible. But Asmodeus does not do that. It would be resource-intensive and he is committed to not using the information, and he is not in the habit of acquiring information. He can't use, he names a price. Sold. It's this mortal in an Asmodean church at the World Wound. You can't miss it, it's the incredibly odd one. Ah, that is an odd one. Does Abadar happen to know why it's adult-shaped, but apparently a newborn baby? He's not willing to pay much for that information, but it seems of mutual interest if there were a way to make adult-shaped humans without the expensive baby stage. The cleric praying to Asmodeus in that church gets a vision. Abadar has no clue, lit plenty of hypotheses and no evidence, who this mortal is or what is going on, but it sure does look lawful. It is possible that some glitch has occurred and that this represents a profit opportunity for law. The priest stands up, shaking, waves Carissa over. There's a scroll of sending in a locked box in the back room. Here's the key. Bring it back. She's not going to ask what happened. It's none of her business. She goes and gets it. Urgently, with direct input from Asmodeus, requesting Seventh Circle pickup at the World Wound. Pursuant to earlier communications, more info on arrival. Should I pack? Hmm. Your notes. Leave your spare uniform. Don't interact with him further until I've briefed you. Absolutely. Don't enchant him. There is something heady, terrifying, validating about knowing Asmodeus has involved himself. He sees it too, she thinks, even though that's absurdly prideful, to imagine they're seeing the same things at all. To imagine seeing is a good word to cover the both of them. She goes and packs. Keltham's current plan is to try reaching out to the intrinsic of Keltham God, followed by Asmodeus if that doesn't work, as soon as he has the quiet and privacy to compose himself and try to arrange his thoughts into the most coherently shaped patterns he can manage, in order to maximize the apparently slight chance that he can successfully contact a god. It may be, in some sense, unreasonable to hope that it's that simple, but probably some things will be simple for him, given his unusual knowledge base, it's worth trying the obvious tactic before trying any less obvious ones, just so that he doesn't accidentally overcomplicate his own life and waste a lot of effort on difficult strategies that aren't actually necessary. Asmodeus, Abadar, Norgorber, Calistria, Nethys.
Next, maybe spend some time trying to figure out what happened and what it implies about the ontology of greater reality. No, next stand up and stretch a bit. You're supposed to stand up and stretch every so often while thinking. Keltham tries to do that and nearly falls over. He ran headlong toward smoke, in freezing cold, longer and faster than he usually runs through freezing cold every day. Ouch. The priest raises an eyebrow at him and offers him a drink. Ah, uh, yes, water. Keltham has heard of this. It's what sane people ingest after heavy exercise, a little beneath the dignity of someone who calls himself a mad investor, but, under the circumstances, Keltham will lower himself to briefly act like a sane person. If they could communicate, he could offer other drinks, but they can't. If they could communicate, Keltham could be puzzled by what was on offer, and why anybody would possibly want to drink it, but they can't. A few minutes later, a person materializes in thin air and the priest rushes over to talk to them. That is so incredibly cool. The logistics this civilization must have. No, wait. All this stuff is incredibly expensive, isn't it? It should be cheaper. That is just Keltham's personal opinion, but it is already a strongly held one. Depending on how much math nobody here knows, he should have a look at the magic business, too, not just steel. It's a long conversation, and after a couple of minutes, they leave to have it in privacy. They go into a room, and an odd, thick fog immediately seeps out of it, ringing the room in a perfectly smooth radius. Keltham already wants him some of that, and doesn't want it any more for seeing much less impressive applications. Though, are they trying to hide the discussions from him? Actually, no, that doesn't make much sense. He doesn't have the local language. They could discuss in front of him how to take all his stocks and eat his soul, and he wouldn't know any better. Carissa comes back a couple of minutes later, sees the fog, looks pleased about it. And after a few more minutes, the teleporting guy comes out of the fog room and says in baseline, I'm Ferdinand Cortes, senior summoner at the Academia in Corvosa. The world wound is periodically swarmed by demons and has very few people with whom you could collaborate on inventing steel. So we want to invite you to come to Ostenso, a large port city in Kaliax, which we think will be a better place for this project. You have my word that I expect you to be safer, more comfortable, better resourced and more able to pursue the goals you've told us of in Ostenso than here and that if you hate it, it's possible in Ostenso to pay for passage back here or elsewhere. Does that sound all right? I now have additional questions. So, it sounds like you were warned that I'm new to this world, but maybe not about the degree to which my own world is incredibly different from this one. Am I right about that? The local priest directly got a vision from Asmodeus about it, which sort of sets a very high lower bound on how important it must be. They're not saying that, though. The wizard who mind-read him thinks that his world has successfully figured out how to raise humans who can almost completely compensate for having free will and think like outsiders. They're not saying that either, though. The right tack here is humility. I haven't actually met people from any other worlds, and I would not have trouble believing I am underestimating how different yours is. Until this person spoke, it had not occurred to Keltham that going to some place might mean that he could not, from that place, go to other places and the fact that somebody thinks he might need to be reassured about that is not reassuring. It brings a lot of other things into question, too many things, in fact. Let me put it this way. From my perspective, what you said implied a lot of facts entirely new to me. Like, implicitly, it might not be good to trust somebody who said I'd be better resourced in Keliax, unless they added, you have my word, and then you think, I ought to trust that. You expect me to worry that if I go to Ostenso, I might not be able to get passage back but you don't expect me to worry that tickets would be too expensive, that I couldn't find other work, or that Chiliax's equivalent of governance wouldn't order everyone who sells transportation to not sell me a ticket. 
there's this particular implied range of attempted defections against a prospective business partner, which you think I should worry about, and which you're trying to reassure me about. But that range itself is less, the word that translates in my language as lawful, compared to my world. And right now, I have not observed enough facts about this world to establish basic causal entanglement between this reality and my mind. When I wonder whether your statements are true, I have to wonder whether any place called Chiliax exists, not whether you're saying something false about Chiliax. To the extent I have to worry about deception like that, I also have to worry that you would still be planning to defect even if you said you gave your word, because I haven't observed whatever system of incentives here makes people trustworthy when they give their words. My uncertainty is so wide, in fact, that I haven't thought of anything I can pragmatically do about it. I mean, I could try to talk to the giant six-legged things inside the bubble and ask them if they're actually demons bent on destroying the world. But that doesn't actually seem smart, because it's potentially dangerous, and a narrow shot inside a very wide space. So yes, fine. Let's go to Ostenso, under the understanding that I'm a prospective business partner trying to cooperate with Asmodeus, and your general treatment of me reflects on his reputation for reciprocating attempted cooperation, because the very smart, very lawful entity should be an anchor of sanity and good coordination if anything is, at least assuming that such any such entity as Asmodeus, or gods in general, exist. And then I request a translation spell, and a library visit, so I can read a lot of random pages in random books, and start to infer back the world those pages were written in. The man thinks about this for about ten seconds. Like it's in fact a lot of new information about something. Deal, he says. And then something over his shoulder to Carissa. Who understood none of that and has only half a guess at the flavor. Yes, I'm coming. She takes Cortessa's arm. Deal. We're still operating informally under a presumption of good intentions and general attempts to repay good deeds later. Or at least I hope we are. Actual proper deals should be written down for ontological stability. Keltham tentatively offers a hand, in case anybody wants a hand for magical reasons, which looks like it might be the case. I don't mean that I'm holding you to precisely what you just said, the man says, but sure, informally under a presumption of good intentions. And they teleport. They're in the summer villa of the Archduke Henderthane of Sirmium, requisitioned five minutes ago in a very rushed conversation with the Queen's personal pit fiend. It's on 1,800 acres, the house itself at the peak of the cliffs looking out across the inner sea. All the prettiest girls at the local wizard school have been dragged over and set loose in the library. The society that made this was poor, but the person who made this was rich. Labor was cheap for him, and it's very beautiful stonework. Okay, this place is pretty. Maybe this universe isn't as much of a dump as it looked from the world wound. Keltham will probably spend a minute or two appreciating all beautiful sights in sight, especially any that don't have Dathalani counterparts, unless somebody attempts to talk to him. No one can talk to him until the Seventh Circle Wizard prepares and casts share language in any event, which takes him about ten minutes. He sits down on the nearest bench and his fingers twitch in the air as if tracking something very complicated. Carissa watches raptly, and then he puts his hand on Keltham's shoulder and Keltham speaks Taldane. Speaking a language suddenly is fairly distracting. All the words you know now map to the nearest available other words in the other language, which is not at all how people learn languages when they learn them. It has been analogized to getting onto an alligator and learning that it rides exactly like the pony you grew up riding on. But this might not be a helpful analogy if you haven't ridden any ponies or alligators. There should be a library indoors. I don't know where exactly, but the staff will, says the wizard. I know Taldane. Relative to prior expectations, 
This is so much higher in my preference ordering than... Wait, what? Oh my ass! Prior probability distribution is how many syllables? Relative to the objective targets for which baseline was optimized, this language was not optimized along the... Keltham stops, concentrates, discards several false starts on Taldane sentences that balloon far out of control. This language isn't good at doing some things my world thinks a language should be good at. At some later point, you should try giving somebody else my language and test whether that makes them think better. Share language only shares ones I know. Possibly you should pick up wizardry. This spell's only two-syllable word for the complexity of the spell relative to other spells, conveying its topology and the fact that the better half of wizards could cast it, and that it uses about 16% as much energy as a basic teleport. Yeah, that was definitely on my ordered list, on my list of things to try. I reciprocate, for your game theoretic. Oh my ass, does this language really not have a less than ten-syllable way just to say thank you? There it is. Thank you for your helpful help, which I do understand to have been offered in a spirit of intended mutual future profit, and not just friendship. There's a polite Dathilani thing to say when you're thanking somebody, and you're not sure how much of their help was pure altruism or not. But if he tries to say that thing, it'll take 8,000 syllables, and then the other person still won't know how to interpret it colloquially. The wizard reminds himself of the thing he's been reminding himself of for the last 11 minutes, which is that this is an alien. And even if they look deceptively human, they don't think that way. He nods. You're welcome. The spell expires every day. Since it's only second circle, Sivar can cast it for you when it needs refreshing. People find that after a couple months of it, they usually just know the new language even without a spell, at least for the words they in fact use. Keliax is glad to have you here and hopes for the success of your endeavors and hopes that your genius will be represented in our children. You're welcome, but I'm not, smart, or not more than 0.8 root of average of squares of deviatio ends from average smarter than average. I just know some things that weren't taught here. He raises an eyebrow at Carissa. Eighteen, she says. That's for a uh, root of average of squares of deviatio ends from average for Galarian's unenhanced population. There's a spell to check. That's a fucking planetary catastrophe, what the ass happened. Our Earthfall, the wizard says uncertainly. But that was 8,000 years ago, and I don't actually have reason to think people were smarter before that. I have always assumed that we're just, at the intelligence level we were created at, or if you like, at the right trade-off between the costs of creating us and the benefits of having things at our intelligence around. My time is expensive. Why don't you get oriented on things like history and average intelligence? And then if you want to buy some of it later, you can spend it better. And he's supposed to report to the Queen. Absolutely fair. Keltham is still fundamentally shaken by the notion of a minus three, two SDG world. It changes everything, on the same level as magic. No, a lot deeper than that. Also, hi, Carissa, he says out loud. I noticed you came along, was wondering if you were just here to do the local equivalent of checking in with a keeper for alien thought process exposure, or are you thinking of joining whatever project gets set up? She's so absolutely been entertaining heresies since her last mind review, and she's relieved his society has that concept, too. I assume they'll send a priest along for that eventually, but I was... She's enlisted and goes where the crown sends her, which is here. Thinking of joining whatever gets set up. My time isn't comparatively expensive, and I can top you off on translation spells and the weather magic we do instead of air conditioning. And, you know, a girl doesn't get mysterious alien strangers dropped on top of her every day and wouldn't want to spend the whole rest of her life wistfully wondering what they got up to. 
the other wizard teleports out. Most of Keltham is still trying to get to grips with the local intelligence level. It's like something is optimizing for making his previous life narrative as unworkable as possible. Plus, 4SDG is at the level where you don't need to master an impossible art of nonconformity, to look in a direction no other nonconformist tried looking, in order to see what nobody else saw. At plus 4SDG, you're just going to look at random poo and see improvements on it, because you are the very smart people who are as smart as the smartest other people who looked at the random poo. He is nonetheless a teenage male, and some things are capable of catching his attention even so. Wasn't somebody named Sevar supposed to do the translation spells? Is that last line flirting? She probably only wants him for his brain. Okay, he can work out how he feels later. First he needs to preserve optionality, which means he needs to flirt back. Of course Keltham has ever had instruction on how to flirt, in the institutions that Dath Ilan has instead of colleges. He is familiar with the theory of common knowledge avoidance that underpins how standard flirting works. Dath Ilan isn't going to fling its children out into the world with no concept of how to find, explore, build, or maintain a romantic relationship. And if I'm not in the news everywhere, it means I failed, unless you're looking for a bit more detail than that. Should he smile after he says the last part? No, that's escalating way too fast. This may not even be flirting, what with the enormous cultural gap. The whole careful common knowledge avoidance process makes even more sense than usual in this case. The appropriate level of signaling back is exactly enough to show that he didn't completely miss the potential implication, if it was an implication, but no more. Keltham keeps a straight face throughout. Oh, are they doing straight faces? Savar's my family name. Carissa's my familiar one. Do they not have that where you're from? No. With nearly a billion people, we calculated globally, unique names would need to be too long to remember. We go by birth order for unique IDs. Two syllables is long enough that you'd be moderately unlikely to be good friends with two people with the same name, so it's what most normies like my parents use in the modern generation. I've considered changing mine to something four-syllable just to be chaotic about it, but common wisdom says I should let my personality finish shaking out up to age 25 first. Well, you'll have to decide before you're in the news all over the world. I don't see how you'd change it afterwards. That gets a smile out of him that he decides not to suppress. If nobody else has it, that's good enough for me. But yeah, I'll check whether there's anyone else on the planet named Keltham before I go public with that one. Wouldn't want to snare any innocence into the dreadful mire of my search shadow. It's not a Chilish name, but I don't know how you'd check the whole planet. We don't all speak a common language or have a, a common mail system or whatever you're imagining. The most powerful wizards I know of are Nefredi Klopati and Philandriel Morgathai, so four syllables wouldn't even be pushing what you could get away with, really. Ha, I'm evil, but I'm never going to be evil enough to wantonly make people memorize seven syllables just to say hi to me. It is also traditional, I think, for evil wizards to have a menacing tower that turns everyone who approaches it into a chicken, so as to only be interrupted by people who are very competent or have priorities important enough to them that they'll be turned into a chicken about them. Your world possesses housing options my world did not, but not entirely unintriguing ones. Speaking of which, I should probably figure out domestic things like where I'm sleeping before I hit up the nearest library for some quick page glimpses. You're relatively more local than I am. Want to point out my next step or meta-step there? On reflection, Keltham decides, he should hesitate to flirt any further than this, before he has actually thought at all about Carissa Savar. Well, personally, were I given the run of the Archduke of Sirmium's summer villa 
I would go look at all of the bedrooms before I decided which one I was claiming and probably take his own personal bedroom unless he's decorated it grotesquely, like with the skulls of his enemies. But if you're terribly eager to go to bed, we could just ask the staff what their plan was, and I'm sure they'll have a skull-free, very lovely bedroom. The skulls of his. They can resurrect people, right? It just costs money. That must sure make for some weird social dynamics. At some point, I'm going to have to figure out the larger social process I'm embedded in, but I appreciate that it is taking the matter seriously. And it's not that I'm eager to get to sleep. It's that I expect to be predictably completely sucked in by the new planet's library, until I finally stumble back, vision blurring, to finally shower and get to sleep. So I need to have planned out all of that final process and asked all the relevant questions about it before I do anything as stickily self-motivation-altering as stepping into another planet's library. Sort of thing that drives all other thoughts out of your mind, I expect. You talk about libraries like wizards talk about magic. She waves impatiently at a child. A person proportioned not quite like a human child, but about the height of one. Show us in so Keltham can look around. The person bows to Keltham. Of course, master. This way. The Taldane word master floats around in Keltham's mind. He can tell that it doesn't map onto employer, which he's not. Polite Dathalani addressed to a custom ER, or for some reason owner. He'll figure it out later. Right now, there's a very short person to follow. The very short person shows him a lovely stonework guest wing with a suite. The suite has a very large bed. The mattress looks suspiciously like these people haven't invented enough material science for really good mattresses, but everything else looks nice. The short person stokes a wood-burning fire in a fireplace across from the bed. There's plumbing, he adds proudly, and demonstrates a sink. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated.